I think it really is helpful as you're trying to think about how can you be happier, healthier, more productive, more creative to think about like, well, how can I do these things most days or even every day rather than trying to do kind of heroic efforts every so often? Because a lot of times in the end, those don't, they just don't stick. They don't matter as much. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. I'm really excited to have Gretchen Rubin with us today as our guest. Gretchen is the author of multiple books, including the number one New York Times bestsellers, The Happiness Project, Happier at Home, Better Than Before, and The Four Tendencies. Gretchen and her sister, Elizabeth, also have their own podcast called Happier, where they discuss good habits and happiness. Welcome, Gretchen. Well, I'm so happy to be talking to you. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Uh, as I mentioned to you, my wife's book club uh, had, was reading The Happiness Project uh, a few months ago, and my wife was quoting it to me at dinner uh, as I was losing, <laughs> so I was losing patience with my kids fighting at each other. So that, that's actually how it made its way onto my reading list, and mm. I've, I've had some really great takeaways from it. Great. That's excellent to hear. Particularly around acknowledging your children's frustrations and problems. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Acknowledge the reality of other people's feelings. Yes. Easier said than done. Yeah. And it probably extends beyond children into adults as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Well, before we dive into your books uh, and how happiness and our tendencies affect performance, I want to just talk a little bit about your unique background. Prior to becoming an author, you had a career in law, and you even clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor. So what was the aha moment for realizing that you wanted to leave your law career and become a writer? Well, you know, it was several things that were coming together all at once. And the most important one was that, so I'm a person who throughout my life, I'll get sort of obsessed with things. Like I, it's one of my favorite things about myself. And um, I'll do a lot of research and uh, take a lot of notes. And um, at that time, I had gotten into an obsession that was so big, I, you know, I was doing this research and taking all these notes in my free time, like after work and on the weekends. And it actually did become my first book, which was called Power, Money, Fame, Sex. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, I'm doing this in my free time, but some people write books for a living. So that idea was in my head, like some people write books for a living. Also, I went to visit a friend who was in education graduate school, and she had all these really boring looking textbooks lying around. And I said to her kind of dismissively, I said, oh, is this the kind of stuff you have to read for your program? And she said, yeah, but that's the stuff I read on my own anyway. And I thought, wow, I want to be doing something where what I'm doing for work is what I would be doing anyway. And I was clerking on the Supreme Court. So I was surrounded by people who loved law. They wanted to talk about law during the lunch hour. They wanted to, they were reading law journals on the weekend. They were constantly talking about law. And I could see that they loved it in a way that I did not love it. Like I did as much, I did what I had to do to do an excellent job for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, but I did not do anything extra. And I could tell that I was different from these people, you know, that they really loved it in a way that I didn't love it. And at a certain point, I started feeling the pull toward writing this book because I had the idea. And for a lot of writers, and I feel this way too, there's sort of a compulsion to do it. You, you sort of feel like you have to do it. So I was getting drawn increasingly in the direction of writing this book. And then finally, it occurred to me, you know, at this point, I would rather fail as a writer than succeed as a lawyer. I need to really try. Like, I need to really try to see if I can make this my occupation. I need to, and I went out to the bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal. And I just followed the directions and got an agent and sold a book proposal. And that was my first book, which makes it sound easier than it was, obviously. But so all these things are sort of coming together within the same kind of year, 18 month span. Yeah, I, I had Dan Pink on. Mm, a few I know Dan. Weeks. Dan and I went to the same law school. We were both, he doesn't mention it very often. I don't know that he wants people to know. He's a recovering lawyer too. Yeah, we went to the, we didn't overlap, but we both went to Yale Law School. Yeah. Well, there must be something about that. They must teach good writing there. Uh, but he, he, you know, he was talking about, I was asking whether the midlife crisis was a real thing or not. And he said, you know, he said that it's not, that, that, that there's a lull, but it doesn't justify the behavior that people have. But there is something about people kind of sitting down and I think reflecting on, do I like this? And is it a career or I love it? I think so many people struggle to make their passion a, 
a career. They're close, right? But so what, what was the last moment that made you sort of jump over? What was the straw? Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned passion, because I think for some people, the word passion is very intimidating. Like, it's a very high bar. And I think sometimes people are like, well, I don't really like what I'm doing, but do I feel passionate about something else? It kind of, it feels like it's hard. In my case, I do think with certain vocations, there are people who feel compelled to do something. I mean, and I've talked to people who are doctors who feel compelled to be doctors. I've talked to physical trainers who feel compelled to do physical training. I mean, I was reading the show notes at a kind of this avant-garde circus that my family and I went to and clearly like reading the notes from the people, people were like, I basically dropped everything in my life and went to join the circus. They felt this compulsion. And so I think for some people, it's not so much what you're leaving. It's what's, I really, truly felt like the Death Star had me in its tractor beam. And I was like, you better take your hands off the control of the Millennium Falcon or it's just going to rip this ship apart. I mean, once I had the idea in my head, this is the book I want to write. And I was like on the way, it felt just increasingly like a thing that I had to try. I think in my case, it was made easier by the fact that everyone close to me was very supportive of me taking a big risk. I think often, sadly, people out of the deepest sense of love want to protect you. They don't want to see you take a risk. They don't want to see you get your feelings hurt. They don't want to see you risk failure. They don't want to see you risk economic you know, you know, you know, risk. And so they really counsel you to do whatever they think is safe. But the problem is nothing safe. Like how many people do we know, do we all know who are in professions that are like basically gone or changed in a crazy degree? So I think it's hard for somebody else to know what is safe for you. But my family was, my family, my husband were all very much like, if this is what you want to do, that's great. Um, you should try it. Because here I had amassed all the credentials that I could possibly need, all the legal credentials. And it was at exactly that point that I was like, and now I'm going to start over with nothing. I did not have a clip. Like I didn't write for the college newspaper. I didn't write short stories. I had nothing, <laughs> you know, and, the, and yet they were very supportive. And I think that made it easier for me. I might have done it anyway, but it certainly would have required a lot more turmoil for me. Um, whereas they were kind of like, if you want to give this a try, Great. Give it a try. See how it goes. Um, so that made it a lot easier for me. You said two things in there that are going to require me to jump ahead <laughs> just to mm. fo- follow up on some of the concepts I think are interesting. One is is the safety one. I, I remember interviewing someone a few months ago from a company that has just been, it's large, but headed in a very downward direction. And, you know, her fear about coming to work with us was that we were smaller and up and coming. And I sort of asked her if she had given thought to all the people that were leaving and that that might not be safe. And it just hadn't really occurred to her. And I think mm-hmm. particularly when there's major paradigm shifts, I think yeah. a, right, there's a false sense of, of what is safe versus what feels yes. safe and familiar. Yes, I think that's the thing. I think what is safe is skills. Like if you're, you know, if you have good skills, then you can maybe plug yourself in a lot of ways and that's safe. But like saying to someone you know, you should be a lawyer because it's safer to be a lawyer than it is to be a writer. Well, on the one hand, that seems true. But then on the other hand, it's like, well, but as it turns out, what I have worked out great for me and I love it. And it's, you know, so so I think it's very hard to intervene with other people and know what is the best course for them. And like you say, things are changing so fast. Like you might be telling someone to do a job that's not going right. to exist in five years. That's very foreseeable. Being a great horse and buggy repair guy yeah, when the yeah. Model T came around probably wasn't wasn't very safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and I, but I mean, I would never say to people like, well, so what you should do is just quit your job and like go write the great American novel, or you know, quit your job and then like go start your you know do your entrepreneur things. Like, there's ways to do it safely, and I did it in a safe way. Like, I had started, I did a ton of the work while I was still had a day job, you know. So I was writing my proposal and I was doing a lot of research. So I was getting everything going while I was still working. I was married. My husband had a job. You know, I didn't have any kids. We were still in the part of our lives where we were traveling light, but we were traveling together. Um, And so it was a good time to take a risk. And that's another thing is I'm like, there's easier times to take risk and trickier times to take risk. And part of what I thought was like, I need to do this now because if I wait, if I take another law job and let that play out for a couple of years, I might not feel like I can take the risk. I might not be willing to take a risk because I'll just be in a different place in my career. I was like, this is kind of my chance. I felt like this is my opportunity. This is the right window for me to try it. So I should do it now or acknowledge that I might never do it. And that was a very painful feeling for me. So I did not pick the time lightly. So I think there's ways to manage risks 
I, I'm friends with Chris Gilbo, who has the Side Hustle School podcast, and he talks about, you know, you can start a side hustle that's going to give you more flexibility and more security. You don't have to quit your day job. You can get that going. And then if it gets so big that that can become your job, well, then that's great. And it's already up and running. People sometimes are thinking like, it's all or nothing. I either need to throw everything away or stay in my dull day job for the rest of my life. It's like, well, can you kind of figure out a way so that it's you can take a risk that's not so risky? Yeah, Adam Grant talked about passing on yeah. Warby Parker because they wouldn't quit their day job. And then he went to look up a bunch of data that said that businesses were more successful where people didn't quit their day job, which I would have thought the complete opposite as well. Well, I think part of it is just to know yourself too, you know, and um, and to be realistic about what kind of circumstances work for you. And um, I'm the kind of person where if you were like, Gretchen, you need to sit down and write an 80,000 word book and get that done. And yeah, I'm like, okay, I could do that. Like, that's the kind of thing I knew I could do, you know? So right. it was like, felt very much like, okay, this is the kind of thing I can do. Now, would anybody buy it? Would anybody publish it? Would anybody want to read it? That I did not know, but I knew like, I can do that. Sometimes you don't know whether you can do it until you've tried. But I was like, yeah, I'm 95% confident I can do that. It's just the, very much the kind of thing for me. Yeah. And we'll, we'll jump into happiness in a second. But the other part that you made me think of in terms of the advice that people give us, I've been writing about this recently as I finished my second book, and I'm, I'm fascinated by cognitive dissonance. I think it occurs to me, too, that a lot of people give us advice that's very skewed about the decisions that they made or didn't make. It's very bl blinded about not what is best for us, but justifying their own decisions. And family, yes. I, I mean, a lot of that comes from, I see family holding people back, even though they, they say they want them to do that, but they're holding them back with the words that they use. No, I think that's one of the reasons why you have to be very careful about seeking advice is because it's it's almost impossible not to have a bias in advice. It's either what you did and worked out for you or it's what you didn't do and that you wish you did or maybe you don't want. I mean, there's just like so many ways that your own emotion if you're and if it's your own children. And I mean, there's just it's very hard to give disinterested advice. Um, right. I think what's best is when people help you think through it and analyze yourself and your own desires, your own motivations, what's going on, how are you gonna do it? Like they can help you get clear in your own head, but them telling you what you should do probably is not such a great, you know, it's not, and it's not like their advice is wrong necessarily. It might just not be right for you and might not be right for you right now. So there's just so many things to think about. And, and they don't even know that it's justifying their own decision. No, it's not 100%, no, no, it's all unconscious. Or you think, you think, well, you could do this. And it's like, well, maybe you could do this, but could this other person do this? Like, you know, if somebody said to me, well, Gretchen, you could sit down and write an 80,000 word book. I'd be like, yes, I can do that. Not everybody can do that. You know, even people who want to write a book would need to set it up in a different way. And so I think you can't help but be influenced by your own perspective. And sometimes that's valuable and people want to hear your perspective. But if you're listening to other people's perspectives, you always have to remember that they don't see the world the way you see it, and they're not experiencing the choices that you are experiencing. Well, you've, you've written quite a few books. I think I counted nine on your site, and your earlier books seem to fall into the historical genre. Why the shift to writing about happiness? Actually, really, I know it looks that way from the outside, but to me, all the books are very much of a piece because they're all about human nature. That is my subject, human nature. So it's happiness, it's good habits. It's who are we, what do we, why are we the way we are? How do we change if we want to change? It's human nature. And so I, you're exactly right. I wrote a biography called 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill and another biography called 40 Ways to Look at JFK. And the reason that I was drawn to these characters is they are so enormous. They cast such a gigantic shadow in the world that you can study human nature with them. There's so much documentary evidence there's so there's just so much about them and they did so much that it's a really interesting way to think about human nature so for me all the books feel very much connected and i think about when especially winston churchill all the time um as i'm thinking about happiness and human nature um but i know but from the outside they look very disparate yeah no, there's, there's always a there's always a theme i'm curious i and i'm not sure i've and the stuff I've read where you've covered this, it, out of 100, ha, do you have a thesis on what you would ascribe to nature versus nurture in terms of, uh, you know, the components? Well, I think, I mean, I think, well, at least with happiness, about 50% of happiness is genetically determined. And I think generally for personality, it's probably like that. So I'm a big believer in the genetic roots of personality. Absolutely. 
I don't know what the number is, but for happiness, at least it's like 50% is the number you most usually hear about. That, that, that's generally the rule I've said, that parents can only take half the credit or half the blame in, in, in most situations. Well, I would say for that, I would say even less. I think you can really screw your children up, but I think basically my view is that you get what you get and you don't get upset and they're very much responding to their peers and things like that. So I, you know, I don't really, um, which is kind of, maybe it's just a way of self-justifying my parenting (laughs) style, which is pretty much like, I don't consider my children to be clay that I can shape very much. I'm kind of like, well, I want to help you get where you want to go. And I want to help you make the most of what you have and, and help you see yourself more clearly. But I don't really feel like if I signed you up for guitar lessons for the next three years, at the end of it, you would end up being passionate about guitar if that's not inside you. Of course, many people believe that you can. Well, there's exposure, right? There's a balance because I, I watch a lot of parents these days and I think you need to be exposed to a variety of things to even know what the possibility is. But it's hard to be great at something if you don't love it. Well, it's hard not to be exposed to a lot of things. I mean, are you exposed yeah. to chess? I mean, could you not be exposed to chess? I mean, my <laughs> children would have been delighted not to be exposed to chess. They were exposed <laughs> to chess left and right. Do Are they interested in chess? No. If I had signed them up for classes, would they be interested in chess? No. I mean, obviously on the margins, and, and, and it can be fun. It's like, okay, yeah, this is just fun. But I, you know, I think a lot of parents think that they are shaping their children much more, whereas I'm like, I think that's the child that you had already, and you're just ascribing it to what you do. Instead of thinking that, like, would they be exactly the same way had I done something different? I think a lot of times. And, and, and it's one of the things I think is fascinating that no one ever really seems to talk about is how do children affect parents? I think children almost affect parents more than parents affect children. You're wildly shaped by the nature of your children. And nobody ever, nobody ever seems to really talk about that. You know, and they're not reading up books on, like, how to be a good you know, uh, <laughs> how to get your parent to go to bed on time. You know what I mean? Um, but uh, anyway. How to get your parents riled up. So so am I hearing yeah. 70-30, 80-20? Is that your oh, I don't, nature? I don't know. I never thought about it. No. <laughs> That's like a factual question that I don't have any particular expertise on. You, you like to research. I you like Dan, so I'm sure you'll maybe, maybe you'll dig into that. Yes, I love to research. So the million-dollar question, what is your definition of happiness? Mm. Well, as we talked about, I started out my career in law and we spent a whole semester arguing about the definition of contract. What is a contract? And that turned me off forever. Uh, The quest for the definition and happiness is even more elusive definition than contract. There's something like 15 academic definitions of happiness. And then people love to play this game of saying like, well, you want to be happier, but but I don't think happiness matters. I think it's joy or bliss or contentment or satisfaction or fulfillment or peace or hedonic well-being or, you know, you can get into that. So I avoid the whole thing altogether. I say I don't define happiness like Justice Potter Stewart. I know it when I see it. And I think it's actually much more helpful to think about being happier because happy, the word happiness kind of conjures up for people this idea of like a perfect state. And then it's like, how do you get there? How do you know if you're there? How do you stay there once you're there? Can you be there 24 seven? Well, I'm like, it's to me, it's like, can you be happier next week, next month, next year? Could you do things in your ordinary life right now that could make you happier? And that people see very clearly. They know for the most part, they have lots of ideas. Like for me, I mean, I constantly am thinking of things. If I did this, I think I would be happier. And then you can just do them and see if you're happier. And you know what that feels like, you know? So I think, um, so I just avoid the question altogether. Okay. So it's easier for people to see tangible places where they could be incremental happier than to think it's reaching some pansea of, of a state. Is that sort of... Yeah, and, and also I don't think that's realistic. Like, I, And I don't think you would even want that. I think like to be perfectly happy all the time wouldn't even be a good life. And I don't think it's right. realistic. So, but I, th- I think it's like, can you be happier? I think, you know, for all of us, I'm like, it seems like the aim should be to be as happy as you can be under your under the circumstances in which you find yourself. Sometimes it's not appropriate to be happier. Like my mom's in the hospital. It's like, I don't expect myself to be a nine on the one to 10 scale. And negative emotions are very, very important for us. I think we should spend a lot of time thinking about our negative emotions and what they tell us because they're big flashing warning signs giving us information about our situation. So, you know, I think, but it's like, well, given your situation, are you as happy as you can be? Well, you might as well be as happy as you can be under your circumstances because then you're just going to be happier. And I think for most people, certainly for me, I found this when I wrote The Happiness Project. And then ever since, I still find it to be true. There's plenty of stuff 
low-lying fruit, low-hanging fruit that I can do to make myself happier without spending a lot of time, energy, or money just as part of an ordinary routine that can make myself happier. And so why wouldn't I? I think that's it's worth doing. So, yeah, I think that that's right. And so what's the biggest deficit of being unhappy or not as happy as someone can be then, given that definition? What, what, both personally and professionally, what, what's the biggest outcome? Well, if you had to say what is the secret to happiness or like what's the principal cause for unhappiness, I think the answer at ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists would agree on this is relationships. To be happy, people need strong relationships. We need to feel like we belong. We need to be able to confide. We need to feel like we can um, get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to feel like we can give support. Um, we need deep, enduring bonds with other people. And when you look at the people who are happier, what you see is that they tend to have more deep relationships. And so, um, and if you look at people at work and, and you say, well, what, what distinguishes people who are happy and less happy at work? The question, do you have a friend at work? Not just a pal that you can like talk about pop culture and sports with, but like someone where you feel like this person has your back. If you have a friend at work and if you feel like your manager, like the person you report to cares about you and cares about what happens to you and wants to help you succeed according to your own aims, those make people happier. And so anytime we're trying to figure out what to do with our time, energy or money, something that deepens relationships or broadens relationships, those are the things that are going to work. Now, there's plenty, many, 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 many other things to do, many, many other important elements of a happy life. But if you had to say, pick one. That is the one I would pick is relationships. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I've always said when people are struggling with certain relationships in their lives or things that make them unhappy, I, and, and maybe you have more options, but I've always felt there are two choices, right? And I think I, I heard someone say this. You can either you know, change your relationship with that person or you can change your reaction to it. Uh, and, and I think people struggle with the latter more of, look, I know what's going to happen. I know my friend's going to come over. I'm going to say this. And I just can't ignore it and I get myself all worked up. So how, how much is it on people to just the stuff that they know that I was speaking to someone this morning and they, they were saying that they get you know, these small customer service complaints that they get in and they keep them up at night and they know it shouldn't, but now it affects their overall happiness. So how, how do you reprogram or tune out the stuff that where your reaction to it is, is causing a disproportionate amount of, of unhappiness than it should? Well, I think it's hard to answer that generally. I don't think there's like one magical answer that can kind of cover that. How about some tips? 
I mean, well, one thing is sometimes feeling of anger, resentment, you know, fear are legitimate. You know, so you don't want to always say like, well, I should never feel guilty or I should never feel angry because maybe there's a reason that you feel angry and maybe you want to act on that. Maybe you want to solve the problem. Like maybe you need, like, maybe you're like every day my boss makes me feel bad. You could say to yourself like, oh, I need to make peace with it. That is one thing to do. Another thing is to be like, you know what, I'm going to get another job. Right. Um, so I don't think the answer is always to like just figure out how to get rid of the emotion because the negative emotion is an important signal. Now, sometimes you're like, you know what? My boss really bugs me, but basically his heart is in the right place. And basically this is the job that I want. So I just need to deal with this in a way so it doesn't like drive me crazy day to day. One of the things you can do is to think about gratitude because gratitude is an emotion that drives out negative feelings like resentment and boredom. So if you can think to yourself, you know what? The guy's annoying. Yes, that's true. But basically, he really cares about me. He's come through for me many times. He's a big believer in my abilities. I love this job. Remember, this is the guy who hired me. He believes in me. And like, can't I just like laugh it off when he does this thing that bothers me? You know, because I'm so grateful to have this opportunity. That feeling of gratitude is something that can help you. Another thing is to think about whether, you know, what is your role in it? Because often, you know, what's like that line from therapy, if you spot it, you got it. And Jung has some beautiful Carl Jung line about like everything that annoys us about other people can teach us about ourselves. It's like, why is this bothering you? There's probably something that you could learn about yourself from it. So try to understand like what's going on here. I'm a person who really likes a schedule. I like a schedule. I like everything to happen in a, in a regular way. And I like to know what's coming up. And I have an idea in my head, like everything that's going to happen at one time. And I'm not very flexible about changing at the last minute or like when things are left open, like, well, we'll just figure out what to do this afternoon. So if I had a boss who was always like changing the plans, that would really, really annoy me. But probably my dedication to a fixed schedule would really annoy the boss. So it's sort of like, well, maybe it's a situation where it's not that one person's right or one person's wrong, but there's just a conflict in approach. And so the question is, how can we create a situation where both people get what they want instead of bugging each other? Or like another thing. So I'm a person who like I work, you know, I'm kind of working all the time. That's the way I like to do things. (laughs) And I was collaborating with somebody who didn't like to work on the weekends. And I didn't know that. And so I was sending work emails all through the weekend. And my view was like, well, do whatever you want. You can answer them on for the weekend. You can wait till Monday. I don't care. Like just do your work in your way. I'm doing my work in my own way. Can't we all just be free to work however works for us? But then I found out this person was really resenting it. And so I thought, okay, how can I, I could change or she could change, or we could just come up with a solution so that neither one of us has to change and we both get to work the way we want. So I learned how to use delay delivery in Outlook. And so now every morning, Monday morning at 8am, she gets like five emails from me. That works for her. It works for me, like problem solved. But it's like, I was really, really annoying her without even realizing it. But was it that I was doing something wrong? Well, it wasn't really that it was wrong. It's just that we have different styles and different approaches. So sometimes like just by acknowledging, well, it's not that I'm right and you're wrong or that you need to change or there's something wrong with you or that there's something wrong with me. It's like, how do we, how do we come to a place that works for both of us without having a lot of judgment about who's right and who's wrong? No, and and communication, right? It all comes down to the heart of yeah. communication. Yes, I I actually use that exact same tactic. I've learned Ooh. the hard yeah. way on the delay delivery because I people you email go, me all right? week. I I can't catch up until Saturday, so usually on Saturday mornings, or I was flying back, I was responding to after yes. like hundred, and then they're all going to get emails from Saturday and be like, "What a bleep that he's you know responding." So yep. I. I I did a staggered delayed delivery from Sunday night till Monday afternoon of, of all the emails. And I've, <laughs> I've found that trick over the years. So that's, I think that's a really yeah. actually helpful one. Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes it's just a matter of figuring that out. You're right. And the communication is really the hard thing. I only kind of by chance found out that I was annoying this person. It, she, she did not tell me directly. And I wish she had just told me directly because I wouldn't have been mad, but it is a lot of times you're, you're right that the communication is what is key and often people shy away from that. So that's another thing that's like maybe the more profound thing is if there's a problem, try to communicate with the person in an impersonal, calm way. Like how do we, is there a solution that we can figure out for this rather than people walking around in kind of a simmering state of resentment or anger or boredom or fear or whatever it might be? Yeah, because I, I, my perspective, I, I, they should, I, I'm taking the time on a Saturday, get back to you, I think you'd be appreciative, and then yeah. I, but it creates the need for them to feel like they need to respond. So it's usually, yeah. uh, the communication is at the heart of, 
of most of these issues. I do massive amount of work Saturday and Sunday morning. That's like my one of my best. Yeah, because no work. one's emailing so me. So I, I, I love I'm to just work there. Flooding people, yeah. flooding people. Yeah, and I know there's people, and there are people who have said to me, "I'm fine to send it on the weekend," but I'm not going to tell you I'm going to yeah. necessarily get back to you until Monday. I'm like, cool, whatever you want. I'll, I'll always mark it if it's urgent. I will mark it urgent and say like I need an answer right away. If not, just, I always always just assume that this is for you to do at your convenience. Because like what I do, there's no urgency really. Rarely is there urgency. But it's very good to just have that conversation because then it's like, okay, then we just all know how to proceed. And I think you learn with experience, like let's have that conversation on your first day. You know, or like my husband who hires a bunch of people, he'll say, I expect you to email me back as soon as you can. And I mean, at night, over the weekend, that's the kind of job that this is. But he's clear Everything happens right away. But he's clear. And so a lot of people like to work that way. They like urgency. They like that sense. They like to just, they just are constantly, I mean, and you can say like, oh, people should take a break from their phone or whatever, but that's the kind of workplace that he fosters. And um, right. And when you're clear about it, then, or, or somebody could push back and say like, well, listen, I can do that somewhat, but from six to nine, that's family time. I just can't do it that. If it's other than that, I will. But during that time, no, then it would be up to my husband to say like, well, can he live with that? Probably he could. You know what I mean? Again, it's like, let's just, like you say, communication. Let's talk it through. Um, what works for you? What works for me? Can we find a way to figure out something that works for both of us rather than saying everything's all or nothing? Yeah. And, and it's actually a good segue to the work environment. You know, we have tended to associate happiness with engagement, which is why we're always measuring it and asking people why they're happy, because we just think that intuitively, if they're not happy, they're not engaged and they're not doing a great job. What does your research tell uh, you about happiness in the work environment? Well, as I said, one of the two, the two most important things are, like, do you have a friend at work and do you feel like uh, your boss cares about you, your direct boss, not your charismatic boss who like gives a big keynote, but like your actual report, who you report to. And then people do need a sense of purposefulness and like that what they're doing is contributing. And, and I think that the larger idea of this is growth and that people are happier when they live in an atmosphere of growth. And growth is, are you fixing things? Are you moving things along? Are you contributing? Are you learning? Are you making something better, something that's not working that well? Are you making it better? Are you adding to the world? Now, some, for some people, that's very important to have a mission. Like, I'm bringing water to you know the desert. And then for some people, it's just like, I just want to do a great job for my team and really deliver this product to a customer who's going to be feel like they got what they wanted. But like nobody wants make work or things that feel arbitrary or pointless. Um, and you want to have that feeling of growth. Um, without the feeling of growth, people start to feel kind of um, paralyzed or stagnant or like, you know, their life is going nowhere. So it's sort of like, are you having opportunities? Like maybe you haven't really done many public presentations, but now you're starting to do public presentations. And the problem with the atmosphere of growth is it's kind of scary at the beginning. You can feel insecure. You can feel resentful. You can feel dumb um you know and so you're like okay well i'm gonna give so, uh, I'll, okay i'll give a presentation and maybe that's really intimidating and then you do it a couple more times and then you feel better about it and then you're like wow i've got a new skill i'm like i can absolutely give up you stand up in front of a group of 500 people and give a big presentation like that's growth so i think that's a big part of uh, of work too. And, and feeling control um one of the things that is a major happiness stumbling block is when people feel like they don't have control so like feeling like you don't have control of your time now we were just talking about this right like email is a way that people feel like they're not in control of their time so how do you feel like you're in control of your time um, and are you working in your own way are you allowed to make choices are you allowed to do things in your own way or do you feel micromanaged or somebody's like constantly telling you what to do that's not a good feeling people people want to feel that sense of control is growth should leaders focus more on capacity building overall with employees in terms of you know the sometimes growth for growth's sake in, in, in a job isn't available but and you were talking before about speaking or just doing things outside of their comfort zone i mean it is just the ability to increase your capacity correlated with i think your ability to become happier or be happier with what you're doing well, I don't think it would be just growth for growth's sake because people might get very annoyed by that. Like, why am I taking, why am I supposed to be doing these online modules to teach me something that I don't need how to do, know how to do? Like, nobody wants to do something that seems totally random. Like, that just feels like you're being controlled, you know? So I think part of it is that it needs to feel like it's purposeful growth, that there's a reason that I'm learning this and I'm going to be able to put it to use or there's some point to it. 
Um, so I think just like saying to people like, we're going to go around the room and everybody's going to public speak so that everybody gets better at public speaking. I'm like, I don't know that that would be helpful in all circumstances. It might be in some, but in some places you might, somebody might be like, that's just not my skill set. I'm not interested in that. I don't have to do that. Like you might as well teach me to juggle. But what if, you, what if you put it back, you know, one thing we tested this year was really getting everyone to focus on their personal goals and share those. So what if you said, look, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, though, about sharing goals. And this kind of gets me to my personality framework, uh, the four tendencies. For some people, they are like if they share a goal, it's very powerful for them. And that really helps them meet a goal and take a goal seriously and feel like it's an act in the world. But there's a certain number of people for whom if they tell people their goals and their aims, they kind of lose their magic. And they do better when they keep it private and they don't like to tell people. And often that if they are in a situation where then they are, they have to share it or they do share it for whatever reason, then they kind of drift away from it. So it's a really interesting distinction among people. It's not universally helpful for people to disclose. That's good to know, because I think a lot of companies are moving towards very open goal setting, transparency. And you're saying, well, that might be good for most people. It might not be good for everyone. Yeah. All right. Let's put a pin in that for one sec. We're going to take a quick break for a message from our sponsor, and then we'll be back to chat more with Gretchen. Hi, I'm Adam Grant. As a Wharton psychologist, I've spent most of my career studying two big questions. How do we unlock original thinking and build cultures of productive generosity? With those questions in mind, I recently co-founded a pretty extraordinary community dedicated to discovering groundbreaking ideas while trying to make the world a better place. It's called the Next Big Idea Club. Together, my friends Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, and I search far and wide for the eight most original, most essential nonfiction books of the year, and we send them straight to you. We also interview the authors, and we send you the key insights across video, audio, and text formats. And remember, this is a book club, so when you join the exclusive online forum, you get the chance to discuss every season's selections, not just with other members, but also with me, Malcolm, Susan, and Dan. Get insider insights from Dan Pink, Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, and Adam Grant, and sign up for the Next Big Idea Club today at www.nextbigideaclub.com slash 10 off and get 10% off your subscription. All right, welcome back. Well, Gretchen, before we jump into the four tendencies, which we were talking a little bit about before the break, I actually wanted to go over one of uh, your quotes that I have seen in a few mm. places, which is mm. definitely one of my favorite, which is what you do every day matters more than what you do mm. once in a while. So I've thought mm -hmm. about this quote a lot and there's actually a, a lot of different ways to interpret it. So I really wanted to ask you how you originally meant it. Mm. Well, I think you're right. I think it has a lot of different, you can think about it in the positive, you can think about it in the negative. There, there's, I'm sure there's many exceptions to it. Sometimes what you do once in a while matters more than what you do every day. Um, the opposite of a profound truth is also true. Um, yeah, this was something that occurred to me. I was writing my book, Better Than Before, which is all about habit change, the 21 strategies that people can use to make or break their habits. One way to think about it is what you do every day matters more than what you do once in a while, like for healthy eating or for exercising. It's like, it's better to go for a half a mile walk most days than to go for a five mile run once every two months. Or it's better to eat healthfully every most days than to like be extremely strict one day and then decide that you you know and then call it off or like to give up sugar for lent and then eat tons of sugar the whole rest of the year it's like lent is not as important as what you eat every day but it's also helpful to remember in the opposite it can often be reassuring so i could say something like well you know it's really important for me to tuck my children into bed at night but sometimes i can't do that sometimes i have evening plans and um i just can't be there to tuck them in but the fact is what I do most days matters more than what I do once in a while. And if sometimes I can't do it, that's okay because most of the time I'm doing that. And so I don't have to beat myself up too much. So I think it can be a, both a helpful reminder and also a reassurance. Yeah. I immediately thought about my kids when I read that in terms of, you know, if you're attentive one day of the week, but ignoring them the rest of the week, then yeah. pro probably doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah. You want to think about how can you do something most for, and, and almost everything, you know, like looking at habits and happiness for almost everything that people want to do to make themselves happier. There are things that are daily. Th they're habit things. They're things that you would do often many times in your life. It's not like going to a 10 day meditation retreat one time. It's like, how do I meditate most days 
for the indefinite future. That's what really is often what's at stake. And it's like, yeah, maybe you want to spend the weekend clearing your whole house out. But then the question is, how do you maintain it little by little over every single day? And so I think it really is helpful as you're trying to think about how can you be happier, healthier, more productive, more creative to think about like, well, how can I do these things most days or even every day rather than trying to do kind of heroic efforts every so often? Because a lot of times in the end, those don't, they just don't stick. They don't matter as much. No, I think that's really important for everyone who's doing crash diets or trying to be nice for a day or to, yeah, it, it, yeah. Uh, it really is a great framework to think about what matters. And, the long game. Uh, yeah. Life is the long game. Like, how do you keep this going for the long game? Yep. <laughs> With, you know, before the break, we were talking a little bit about the four tendencies, which is your new book. Mm -hmm. and it's a personality yeah. framework that you've uh, identified that divides all of us into four types. So I took the quiz mm -hmm. and I learned that my dominant Ooh. tendency is upholder. So I, I'd love to yes, hear, I, explain. I already it. knew I could tell that from you already. I wish you'd had me guess and I would have guessed right. Yeah, I forget what you said. That was the tip off. Yeah. All right. So explain me and then and then what the other ones are. That would be really great. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'll just briefly describe them. And most people can tell what they are from a brief description, but there is a quiz you can take online at happiercast.com slash quiz, or you can just go to my website, GretchenRubin.com. And like 1.3 million people have taken this quiz now. It's free. It's quick. But like I said, actually, a lot of people don't even need to take the quiz. They just know what they are from a very, very brief description. So the four tendencies divides people into upholders, like you, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. So and it has to do with how you respond to expectations. And we each, all of us face two kinds of expectations. The expectations that come to us from the outside, like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then we have our own inner expectations, like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to get back into playing guitar. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation. If it meets their inner standard, they will meet it. If it fails their inner standard, they will resist. And they typically will rail against anything arbitrary, inefficient, irrational. That's what sets them off. That is my youngest son. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, it often shows up very early, the tendencies. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So I saw this for the first time when I was coming up with a framework, when a friend of mine said, when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now on my own? Well, she's an obliger. When she had a team and a coach waiting for her, she had no trouble showing up. But when she was trying to go running on her own, she struggled. So these are the people who will never, never let down a client. You know, they would never not meet a deadline at work, but then when they're trying to like start meditating every morning, they can't stick to it. That's a challenge. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. Uh, they can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, uh, they are very likely to resist. Um, so those are the four, and there are not the same number of all of them. So the biggest tendency for both men and women, the one that the largest number of people belongs to is obliger. You either are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. That's a big tendency. After that questioner, the smallest tendency, it's a conspicuous tendency, but it's a small tendency, is rebel. And upholder, which is your tendency and my tendency, you and I are both upholders, only slightly larger. Not that many people are upholders, which I don't know if you've noticed that, but most people are not upholders. Um, and I, I can usually spot a fellow upholder coming. It's like, I, for you, I was like, nah, I think this guy is starting to sound like an upholder. <laughs> so that's the framework. So again, you can take a quiz if you go to GretchenRubin.com, or maybe you just know what you are from listening to this, the short description. I, I'm going to make a guess that rebels, a lot of them work for themselves. Well, that's interesting. Um, a lot of rebels do. They do. They often because they don't want to have a boss. Um, some <laughs> rebels, though, it's hard for them because they don't they don't want to tell themselves what to do. And so that can be hard if you're trying to go out on your own. So I guess what I should say is the tendencies don't tell you anything else about somebody. So you, it doesn't tell you how ambitious somebody is, how analytical somebody is, how curious somebody is, how considerate of other people's feelings, how idealistic, how adventurous. So if you have a highly ambitious, 
driven rebel, they can work for themselves because they're like, I want to be a big success. And so they can do anything they want that they think is going to make them a success. They could be very successful if that's what they want. But if they don't want that, if they don't have the other parts of their personality like that, then they might not succeed there because they're just out and on their own. And it's interesting. Some rebels are very attracted to areas of high regulation, like the police, the clergy, the military, or large corporations with lots of rules which puzzled me um, for a long time. But what these rebels describe is that they feel like they need rules to push against, that when they're in this place with lots of rules, it's almost like that gives them the energy. It's like pushing off from the side of a swimming pool. And that if they don't, if they're not in an environment like that, they kind of get paralyzed or they just kind of go stagnant because there's nothing, there's nothing to create the energy. So they kind of need the energy of resistance, but then they find a way to succeed within it. You know, like they're in the military and they're like, well, I'm really successful in the military, but I always find a way around the rules and I break the rules sometimes, but somehow, you know, I find a way to succeed. It's hard to make generalizations because there's so many variations, like, so, like some rebels are really good at sales because it's like, hey man, you just do whatever you need to do to make a sale. And a rebel's like, okay, you're like, all right, I can do that, I'm, that's awesome. But then usually, people of other tendencies could also go out on their own and could also be good salespeople. Or like you could say, well, questioners make good journalists. Well, questioners do make good journalists, but people of the other tendency also make good journalists. It just, there's so many factors that make someone suited to a profession. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. Harvard Business Review provides information, tools, and practical advice on leadership, management, and strategy through the hbr.org website, their print publication, and their podcast. hbr.org is your go-to for leadership and business management articles. A recent favorite is Stop Eliminating Perfectly Good Candidates by Asking Them the Wrong Questions. Then there are other world-famous case studies, which premium subscribers can access as well. HBR produces a number of leading podcasts from HBR on leadership to my favorite, the HBR IdeaCast podcast. A subscription to HBR also includes access to videos, the big idea, HBR magazine, and a wide variety of newsletters. While much of the Harvard Business Review content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org subscriptions and enter promo code ELEVATE to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. So how can someone use these either personally or professionally? What is the best way for them to think about how to use these and how to relate to folks that are similar or different? Yeah, I think you're right. You can use it to manage yourself better and you can also use it to communicate better with other people and to like minimize conflict and persuade better and to figure out like how to get things done. So I think the thing when you're dealing with yourself, all the tendencies have strengths and weaknesses and they all include people who have been really successful and also big losers. Um, so it's not a question of like wishing that you were a different tendency, but figuring out how to harness the strength of your tendency and then offset the limitations and weaknesses of your tendency. So for instance, let's take obligers because that's the biggest group. So obligers are often frustrated because they see themselves meeting other people's expectations, but they're not meeting expectations that they have for themselves. And that's like, they're like, what's wrong with me? Can't I make myself a priority? Can't I can't I keep promises to myself? Why can't I make time for what's important to me? And that's frustrating. 
So once you know that you're an obliger, then the answer, the solution to this problem becomes extremely clear and straightforward and simple, which is outer accountability. To meet inner expectations, obligers need outer accountability. And that's just what they need. And they can say things like, well, I don't want to be dependent on outer accountability. It's like, well, I don't know what to say. This is what works for obligers, outer accountability. If you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to exercise more, take a class, work out with a trainer, work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up. Take your dog for a run who's going to be so disappointed if he doesn't get to go for his run. Think of your duty to be a role model for other people. Think of your obligation to your future self. There's a million ways to create outer accountability. Once you know that is what you need, obligers need outer accountability. But it's complicated because rebels often do worse with outer accountability. They resist outer accountability. They don't want someone looking over their shoulder and enforcing, like, you know, that doesn't work for them. And so you need to take that into account. Okay, if I'm dealing with a rebel, how, like, I will definitely write emails in different ways, depending on what tendency of person that I'm communicating with, because you can give your message in a way that's going to resonate more with them. And then also with yourself. So for instance, questioners, questioners very focused on justification. They need to have reasons. Um, they always are saying like, well, why should I? They have to get the answers to that. So if I man so whenever I talk to a questioner who's like, well, I really want to eat healthfully. I don't know why I'm not. Because questioners usually once they make up their mind to meet an inner expectation, they can do it. I'm always, my answer is always, are you really convinced? Have you really decided in your own mind, this is that there's a lot of theories about how you should eat. Do you in your own mind have perfect clarity about what you think is the best way for you, the most efficient, the most justified reason for you to do it? And usually they're like, no, because some people are telling me to eat paleo, but then sometimes people are telling me to be vegan and I don't really know what's the best way. I'm like, you got to get that clarity because once you know what you expect from yourself, that's when questioners do well. Now, if I'm talking to a questioner, I'm married to a questioner, so I know what it's like to talk to a questioner. You always have to explain why. You can't just ask them to do something because they're going to be like, I'm not going to do that just because you tell me to. Like, why should I do that? Like, if I said to my husband, will you pick up smoked turkey on the way home? The fact is he wouldn't because he'd be thinking to himself, well, if you want smoked turkey, you pick it up. Or we have plenty of food at home. Like, I don't understand why I have to run this errand. But if I say to him... Can you pick up smoked turkey on your way home because our daughter's going on a field trip and we and she needs to pack a brown bag lunch and I don't have time to go to the grocery store today? It's like he's like, oh, that's a good reason. Then I will do it. But I've learned I need to give him reasons. You know, if you're dealing, you have a questioner son, you have to explain why. If I'm telling you to memorize the multiplication tables, why? Why do you have to do that? Um, there's a, there's an answer for that, but saying, because you're in fourth grade and all fourth graders have to memorize the multiplication tables or because I'm the teacher and I say, so that's not a good reason. And they often won't do something if they don't think there's a good reason. You got to explain to them. You got to take the time. And it's, it's sad to me to hear from so many questioners where they just won't do something because they don't understand why they should, even when it can have pretty big consequences for them, their refusal, but it's pretty easy to explain to them why they should do something. And by the way, if there is no good reason why they should do it, then they shouldn't have to do it. And this is why it's good for all of us to have questioners around. Because if you have a question in the workplace, they're the ones that are saying, why should we switch to the new software? Why are we doing this by Friday? Why are we using this format? Why are we doing this at all? That's useful. Because it keeps it because everybody else just would be, you know, not having those fundamental questions all the time. And, and it can get exhausting too. That's the downside. So uh, you can really, it really can very profoundly affect how you manage yourself and how you manage other people. That's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that we really train our team on is when they're asked questions is to, by clients, is to respond with a why. Oftentimes in even answering the question that they're being asked or responding to it, they're not understanding why they're being asked that and they may get it totally wrong. And it goes to something we were talking about before, right? Where under communicating just never is good. As you were saying that, it just occurred to me. I think for any tendency, hey, can you get the turkey? You could probably check off a lot of people's buckets by explaining more about why you need the turkey and why you can't get it and, and what it's being used for. And I think- we'll but, but here's the thing. There's a time and a cost to explanations. Yeah. And questioners often do drain and overwhelm other people because they need more information than other people want. And see, with my husband, I mean, just to take the very homely example, I don't want to get into that. I don't. He can ask me to do something and I will just assume- He's got a reason. I don't need to have like a lot. Like I'm like, I don't want to read a long email explaining this to me. If you need it by Friday, just tell me I need it by Friday. I actually am not interested in knowing why for your purposes you need this by Friday because that's just noise to me. 
but you could say, well, then maybe you don't really need to have it done by Friday. Maybe you could have it done by Monday. And so it's good to be a questioner. Well, in some cases it is, but there's a cost to it. So it's not always like more explanation is better because more explanation can sometimes exhaust people and they don't, if they don't want that information. So I think there's ways actually that you can build this in. So for instance, I mean, nobody wants to be done, asked to do something that's arbitrary or totally pointless. So to a point right. it's important, but like you could imagine, like, let's say I'm the boss and corporate has decided we're going to do this new software. And so I'm presenting it to the team. Okay, we're going to use this new software. So I could give a brief presentations explaining this is the reason that we're doing. This is what's happening. You know, quick summary. And then I could say, if you feel like you've heard enough about why we're switching software, please feel free to return to your desks. And if you would like to remain here, I'm happy to answer your questions for as long as you need so that you can understand why we're making this change and why we think it's valuable. That way, some people are like, oh my gosh, who cares? Like, I don't want to hear a lot about like the ins and outs of like 10 different software programs, like whatever, you know, this is you, this you, for you guys to decide. That's not my problem. I get to go back to my desk and make sales calls or whatever it is that I'm doing. But then the questioners who are like, hey man, I'm not going to switch software just because you say so. Yeah. You got to convince me that this is going to go to the bottom line. Like, what's your thinking here? I don't get it. Then, okay, your questions are going to get answered. But I don't have to take everybody's time to do that because then some people start getting bored and some people start getting annoyed. And then it's like a lot of tension. Is it bad that some people are asking these questions? No, it's positive. Does everybody need to be exposed to the same level of information? In some situations, not. You know, if I'm a doctor talking to a patient, well, how much information is useful for that patient? Some patients have an, an inexhaustible desire for information, and that's a problem to deal with. And then others don't want any at all. And then you sort of want them to know enough, but you don't need to provide the same level. They might just find that to be overwhelming or distracting. It's just that people are different. Yeah, you have to look for the cues, it sounds like, and, and yes. know, know your audience. And then also like not to take it amiss. So like sometimes what happens with questioners is like if they get someone who's defensive or thin skinned, that person can feel very um, defensive at being asked questions. And so it's like, okay, you don't have to feel attacked or like this person's undermining your judgment or your authority. They just want to have their questions answered so I can respond differently. Or if I'm an obliger and my boss just keeps saying like, uh, oh, just, just whenever this is a good time for you, get back to me on this. And you could say to your boss, you know what, I really do better when we have deadlines. So let's sit down and, and talk through when do you need these things by? Because that's going to help me follow through. Because if you just leave everything like floating around, I just might never get around to it. Whereas with an upholder, that would work fine. It's like, well, when you have, you know, and, and that's how upholders basically tend to talk. It's like, when this works for you, will you do it? But then we expect people to flawlessly execute on their own. It's like, well, by the way, that doesn't happen very often. So upholders often aren't good managers because they don't understand why other people need more, either to have more questions answered or they need more autonomy and freedom and choice or they need more accountability. It's like once you realize that, then it's like, OK, well, how do we how do we build these things in for the people who need them? I, I now realize I was in a dialogue with a questioner this morning about getting on a mm. conference call to discuss something that we would do or not do with this partner. And my thought was to that that call would be about asking the questions. But I got about 10 questions back around why we should give them the call to, to ask the questions. And, and, I was right, like, yeah. and, I, and I was like, well, that the point of the call is to ask the questions. I don't have the answer to the question. So I, I right, that right, is now, right, right. now illuminating that for me. Yeah, the funny thing about the tendencies is once you know about them, they're very obvious. Like I see them on TV shows, I see them in novels, I see them in movies, I see them in the people around me. Like there's certain things that are just tip-offs, like things that people say, you're like, okay, that person's probably a this. And it really, you can start tailoring your communication in a way. So for instance, like as I'm an upholder and kind of the opposite of the upholder is the rebel. But whenever I'm saying something to a rebel, like when I'm trying to like, you know, I, I don't really have anybody who works for me, but I kind of collaborate and work team up with people for different things. I always, you know, with a rebel, it's always like, you know, if you have the time and the inclination, could you do this? Or if, if this works for you, you know, might you consider doing this? Or, you know, this is something that I found really interesting. And I thought, well, maybe you would find it interesting too. Like I made the mistake. Uh, I found this great. I don't even remember what it was. It was like this, tr this hashtag that was hilarious. And I emailed a rebel friend. I'm like, oh my gosh, you have to go onto this Twitter hashtag. And she refused. And then I was like, of course she did. You can't tell a rebel you have to do this because then they're going to be like, no, I don't. Like you have to read this. No, I don't. You're going to love this. You have to listen to this music. No, I won't. So I should have said something like, oh my gosh, I'm cracking up so hard looking at this. Have you seen it? 
Because then it's like... Let it be their idea. You can look at it if you want. Like, I think it's hilarious. But, you know, do you or, you know, and then it's like, well, and if you just want to ignore it, you can. But but saying something like you have to, you must, you said you would, that doesn't work for a rebel. So you have to think about how to communicate with them in a way that doesn't ignite the spirit of resistance. And again, it sounds a lot harder than it is, because once you see these patterns, it's very easy to think like, oh, well, I see how if I added a sentence or two here, it would appeal to the questioner. I see if I added this, that, and the other thing, it would appeal more to an obliger. If I said this, that, the other thing would appeal more to a rebel. One of the things I love is signage and seeing what signs appeal to what tendencies or who even who wrote it. A lot of times you can tell the tendency of the person who wrote a sign, like, like, you know, vernacular signs, signs that like people leave in an office kitchen or something like that. And somebody told me about it is, it is an advertising jingle from decades ago. And yet people still talk about it because it was so powerful. And I think it's so powerful because it appeals equally to all four tendencies. And that is the line only you can prevent forest fires. That works for upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. It's one sentence long. It's powerful. But $50 fine for leaving your campsite unattended. It's like, well, why? I don't understand. Whatever. I mean, you can get into all kinds of signs that like will trip off people's different objections. But that's a great line. And I think that's part of why it's so memorable. It's because it works so well. Makes you think. Yeah. So what's your next book going to be about? I'm doing a funny little book called Outer Order, Inner Calm, um, which is coming out in March because I've been intrigued ever since I wrote The Happiness Project by how fired up people get about getting outer order. Because, you know, in the context of a happy life, something like a messy coat closet or an overflowing in basket at work, it doesn't, you know, you got files on the floor. It's like, it's not a big deal. And yet over and over people say to me that like when they get control of the stuff of their life, they feel more in control of their life generally. And I just think it's kind of funny. It's disproportionate. You know, like somebody, a friend of mine said to me, I finally cleaned out my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I was like, I know exactly what you mean by that. Um, And so I was just, I got, I just wanted to do like a fun little thing about creating outer order. So that's not a big book. That's a little book that I kind of couldn't resist. Is that coming out? I couldn't resist writing it. So it's coming out in March. In March. Okay. Next March. Yeah. And the 10th anniversary of the Happiness Project is coming up. So the, a re-released edition of that is coming out in November of 2018. And, uh, you know, we'll have like stuff in the back that's all kind of for the anniversary. And so that'll be fun. But it's not a new book, but it's some, you know, it's a it's a book milestone. All right. Great. And last question that's a favorite of ours is what's a personal or professional mistake that you've made that you've learned the mm. most that you've learned the most from? Instead of a mistake, can I talk about a failure? Absolutely. Put them in the same bucket. Okay. Yeah. So I, you mentioned much earlier in our discussion that I had written these biographies, these historical books. And so I wrote a book called 40 Ways to Look at JFK, which is this sort of short, unconventional biography of JFK. And I loved writing that book. It was a joy to write that book. But as they say in the publishing industry, that book did not find its audience. That's what they tell you when your book is a flop. Your book did not find its audience which is a very diplomatic thing to say. But nevertheless, what it taught me was I had written this book that I loved, that I thought was really, really good, that I thought a lot of people would be interested in, and yet no one was buying it. And I felt very powerless because in the book industry, it's like I couldn't control if I got on morning television shows. I couldn't control whether anybody reviewed it. I couldn't control whether people assigned profiles or feature stories. I couldn't control if like historical groups put it in their newsletter. I had no control over that. I had no way myself of telling people about the book. I was totally dependent on these other intermediaries to do it or not do it. And I just was like, from that failure, I was like, I feel that I must develop a direct relationship with readers. I want to be able to contact people myself. And it's sort of like one of these things where, well, maybe they will want to read the book or maybe they won't. But I want that I want to be able to tell them that the book exists. Because I think for a lot of things, it's like you just don't even know it's there, especially when that's only helped more and more a problem. There's just so much of everything. And so because of that, I started my blog and I wanted to do something novel and challenging as part of the experiment of the happiness project so i started a blog and from there i started a newsletter from there you know now i have an an ask gretchen rubin live show on facebook i have my podcast happier with gretchen rubin but all of this is from this decision that i made i must have a direct connection to readers 
I myself, I cannot be dependent on, on these intermediaries to get the word out for me. I need to have, have tools myself. And I've tried things that didn't work, um, but a lot of things that I have have really helped me connect directly with readers. And, um, and it's been a huge engine of happiness. I love being able to hear from readers. I hear from readers and viewers and listeners constantly, which I love. So that makes me happy. They also give me a lot of information, a lot of insights and examples of the things I'm writing about. So that's super helpful. And then also I am able to feel like, again, I can't make somebody buy a book. I can't make somebody be interested in a book, but I can at least tell people that there is a book and that's as much as you can do. <laughs> and so, um, but if I hadn't had that book fail in the way that it did, I don't think that I would have felt that need because it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work to figure out how to do these things and then maintain them well. It's a whole other aspect of my writing career that I did not anticipate when I became a writer. A lot of writers really resist doing those things. They don't want to do that kind of work. And I think if I hadn't had that failure at a key moment, I probably would have a completely different career and a completely different writerly world that I live in. And so, um, so it was a very valuable failure. It hurt. <laughs> um, it was, it was not a, it was not a fun way to learn a lesson, but it was, uh, but there's a great Benjamin Franklin quote where he says, experience keeps a dear school, but a fool will learn in no other. And I feel like that's what happened to me. It's like, I, I learned the lesson the hard way, but I did learn it and it was very valuable. Well, Gretchen, it's been an honor having you on Outperform. Your work is both inspiring and fascinating. And thank you for taking the time to talk with me today and bringing uh, more happiness and good habits into all of our lives. Excellent. It was so much fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. All right. For our listeners, we'll include notes from the episode and links to Gretchen's website, podcast, and her tendency quiz in our show notes. So until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.